It is season two of the Toddcast. And as much as I love the sound of my own voice, we're going to share the mic with some other folks this season. Including that will be Chris Lebowski. Chris has a unique and for me intriguing outlook on health and wellness. I have long suspected that COVID-19 was a lens through which we could perceive more critically and more truthfully the state of our well-being, our health as people, as a country. And I think we have failed dramatically from nearly every position in learning lessons from COVID. And we have mostly as we hopefully are coming out of COVID, we're entrenched in dogma, but I'm not sure we've taken deeper lessons from it. And I'm relying on my friend Chris to help extrapolate some of those. So without further ado, Into the Fire Swamp with Chris Lebowski. So welcome to season two of the podcast, and today I am talking with Dr. Chris Lebowski. Hello, Chris. Hey, Todd. Good morning. So who are you, and why do you matter? I'm a naturopathic physician who has a private practice in Southern Oregon in Ashland, and I've been doing this for about 15 years And I spent a lot of time over the last two years, not only thinking about, writing about, but treating an awful lot of COVID-19 cases. So I have a perspective that I think is perhaps different than some other people, perhaps some shared views, but the whole pandemic and everything that happened in it really matters to me. And it really matters moving forward because I think we can't really look towards the future unless we look at the past. And I want to make sure we don't make the same mistakes we did this time again in the future. How about we dig into your background, how you got here and push forward from there? So I've always had an interest in pandemics. It's sort of interwoven with my training and my deep fascination and experience with treating infections. I see some really, really sick people and a commonality between all of them is that they have chronic infections and you don't really get good at treating chronic infections unless you understand acute ones. So something like COVID-19, when it sweeps around the world, I started paying attention to this thing in December of 2019, where I was watching these accounts of a novel coronavirus in China. And I spent about six lonely weeks fascinated and terrified about this infection that would be traveling across the ocean in short order to the United States, where I was deeply concerned that all of our hospitals, primary care clinics, facilities like mine would be overrun with people with this infection. So I spent 
many lonely weeks by myself researching this, trying to figure out what was happening with this infection, who was surviving, who was dying. And that was difficult at the time because most of the information was out of China and you can't really get good information out of China. And I was deeply worried and concerned. Uh, I would say most of the other doctors I spoke with at that time didn't think this was going to amount to be an infection of note, but there was something deep in my bones telling me differently. So I put together treatment protocols based on the few bits of information I could get out of China and other places. And then patients started to come in. We started to see COVID sick patients in February and March and started to treat them. How many patients do you figure you have treated for COVID-19 so far? I really stopped counting, but the number is probably somewhere around 500 plus. And if this were baseball, what's your batting average? In the course of the last couple of years treating COVID in my practice, we've had two patients go to the hospital. They were both there for less than 24 hours. And both of them are diabetic and morbidly obese. And they weren't really following the treatment protocols that we were outlining for them. We haven't had anybody pass. And I'd say we're doing really well with long COVID also. What are your thoughts on um, the first wave, the hysteria, and who got sick? There was a lot of concern to be had early on. When you're reading these news reports um, from the mainstream media, media, it was terrifying. If you're seeing photos of people dropping dead in the street in China, there's reason to be concerned. And so I think um, our early on tactics with that sort of information made a lot of sense. You know, at the time, isolation and um, shutting down businesses and just stay home with the information we were provided, that was probably the most reasonable thing to do. And, you know, there was a lot of fear, a lot of fear. Then as things evolved and we started to understand more, you know, the, the pathogenicity of the virus, who was getting sick, who was getting really sick, who was dying. I think it was time to, to pivot and turn and change our approach. And I think a lot of ways we didn't do that. I think we sort of stayed in the same mindset from the very beginning. And, and to this day, we still are in some regards, whereas you need to be in medicine, as in most things, adaptable and change with the information, the new information that's being presented to you. So can you speak a little bit to um, who got sick and um, how did folks do? You know, we've lost, according to the numbers I see on my screen, you know, over a million people in the United States. So who did we lose early and did our response to it make sense? You know, we did. We lost a lot of people to COVID, not only in the U.S., but worldwide. And that's a shame. You know, we had historical data from other coronaviruses and other pandemics in the last 20 years, SARS and MERS, that we could have 
gathered a lot of information about one, who was susceptible and two early treatment protocols to help those people. And we didn't, unfortunately. And what we could have known from those and what we saw early on in COVID-19 is that number one, the elderly were the most susceptible. Two, people with pre-existing cardiovascular disease. Three, people with blood sugar dysregulation issues and at the extreme diabetics. And then four, an interesting one that doesn't really get out into the news much, but if you, you know, crawl the research, you'll see that gut dysbiosis or problems with our gastrointestinal tract also really predispose people to severe illness and death. And that information started to come out fairly early on. I started to understand those pre-existing conditions and those comorbidities and who was susceptible to death in 2020, you know, early 2020. Couldn't you just chalk that up to common sense, though? You know, as someone who charts and guides paths for you know, people's wellness and living well, and then you see these comorbidities, like when you see somebody walk through the door and they're 100 pounds overweight or right, they're breathing through a tube, doesn't that kind of tell you this person's at risk? It does. And, and it should have with this, even if we just use the knowledge, uh, though they're different, but similar, even if we just use the knowledge of people that typically die from influenza, we could have extrapolated some of that. But then, as I alluded to earlier, if we looked at historical pandemics, particularly ones with coronaviruses, we would have seen similarities. We would have seen the inflammatory patterns that we saw in the blood work of people that were infected with those SARS-CoV-1 and MERS and seen that the same inflammatory patterns were happening in SARS-CoV-2 or COVID-19. But we didn't do that, unfortunately. In my opinion, we sort of got locked into this mindset that everybody's of equal susceptibility, everybody's of equal likelihood of dying, and we use these blanket policies, which had all of the unnecessary side effects and problems that you've discussed in other conversations, you know, the, the things that happen with lockdowns, the things that happen to our children by taking them out of schools, the problems with masking in certain situations. And yeah, we could have done a better job. Oh, if you, like didn't, if you didn't slurp and make that big ah sound afterwards, it wouldn't be such a big deal. It wouldn't taste as good either. <laughs> I'm pretty, I'm pretty sure of that. In fact, I'm, I'm going to follow the science on that. That's in gonna... no way anecdotal, right? Or self-supporting. Nope. N of one, but here, let's make it an N of two. Let me try. <laughs> <sighs> yep. Science. <laughs> tell me if my head is up my backside but as i scroll around it appears to me that covid19 really was an acute lens by which to perceive ourselves it was kind of here's a challenge and how we handle this is going to speak more broadly into how we're doing. I, I think any traumatic event, any crisis always shows you really who you are in the moment. It's impossible for it not to. 
Do you run into the burning building or do you run the other direction? And this was a burning building for a couple of years. We did, you know, I think a lot of people did the best they possibly could. Uh, I don't fault anyone for their response to it. I have concerns about the way certain aspects of this were portrayed in the media. And I think if we can point a finger anywhere that uh, directed or pushed people's behavior perhaps towards one side of the cliff or the other, the, I would I would shine a light onto you know the legacy media and why they presented some things in certain perspectives. Um, was it to sell more newspapers? I don't know, but uh, that that's where I would sort of look. Well, fear sells, and it does. Conspiracy sells. It does. And, and grievance sells. And you know, with those three tools, you can cover just about everybody. And I see it on both sides, honestly, Todd. I see it from the right and the left. I see it from the COVID fanatics to the COVID deniers. And it's, I've really tried throughout this whole thing to stay in the middle path. Right. And it's been difficult because I've been reading things on both sides and talk to people on both sides. But I think that's where my perspective, having treated a lot of COVID and having watched what happened to some sick people gave me a maybe a more balanced perspective than someone who never saw COVID, only read about it in the paper, and or maybe had a friend or a neighbor who got sick or a loved one that died. But I, I mean, I really had my boots on the ground and my hands in it for the last couple of years. And I really did try to do a balanced job of keeping my mind out of the gutter on one side or the other. Were you, in that attempt, able to speak to folks on either edge in a compelling manner where you could move them off their spot? I say it to my wife all the time. I don't try and convince anyone of anything. Because if there's anything I've learned in 15 years of being a physician is that people don't change unless they're ready to change. So I presented the facts as much as I could along the way. And I spent a lot of my day doing research. I spent a lot of my day on PubMed looking at journal articles and really trying to understand the science, the true science, not just trusting the science, but really investigating it. So I don't know that I moved anybody off of anything, but I do know that I provided comfort to a lot of people along the way who looked to me for some answers or a voice of reason in the sea of madness. Despite your conviction, um, I'm convinced. <laughs> so you got one. Fantastic. Except that you and I have been in each other's ear for the last couple of years as we've surfed this wave. And we both tried to stay in the middle. Yes. Right. Yes. I mean, I don't really want to convince anyone of anything. I want to I want people to make their own decision and make the correct decision for themselves. And I don't think COVID's any different. Whether you feel that this was just a bad flu that had a predilection for killing people over a certain age group, or you feel that 
this was the most deadly thing that swept across the planet. If you feel that the right therapeutics include things like vitamins and minerals and antioxidants and herbs, or you feel the only answer to this problem is a vaccine, I don't have any vested interest in convincing anyone on either side. I just would like everyone to look at the information in a balanced way, which I don't think, unfortunately, we were able to do. I think there was censorship, and I think that people were denied the ability to really have access to everything that would have allowed them to make an informed choice. I want to table censorship for a moment, because I sure. want to come back to that with you and when we have time to really peel the onion. Sure. And I want to ask you about when you first began broadcasting your observations concerning COVID, what was the response? Particularly, I think, was it a YouTube channel? So, yeah, we're, we go back to December 2019, where I'm, you know, the only doctor I know who's worried about this thing, to flip forward to February and March, where we're starting to lock down the country and mask everyone and shut down the schools. And I, as I stated earlier, was going through the research and trying to understand what was working and what wasn't working. I started, of course, to present that to my patient base, as well as make some YouTube videos for the general population, addressing things like dispelling some myths around particular natural medicine substances that could or couldn't be helpful or cause harm, uh, talking about the possibility that drugs like, you know, common drugs that people take like ACE2 receptor medications or ACE you know, beta blockers, things like that, whether or not they would, people that took them would have a greater risk of dying from COVID, just going through it on a day-to-day -day basis and really trying to provide some information when there really wasn't a lot of information. And um, I did that for probably six to eight weeks, made some videos, sent out some emails, and of course, talked to hundreds and hundreds of scared patients who were calling the clinic all the time and wanted information. And you... And for that, you received a thank you from the governor, right? Well, not the governor. And this goes back to the issue of censorship. In April of 2020, we received a letter from the Federal Trade Commission telling us to stop and immediately remove the videos we had posted on YouTube on the subjects that I just previously stated. And so... When you get a letter from the Federal Trade Commission, at least I did, I immediately removed those videos and wrote a letter and explained to them that I had no intention besides trying to provide some information. A week goes by, we get another letter from the Department of Justice that states that we're under investigation for posting those videos. And it was at this point, Todd, that I went, wait a second, what's going on here? I am not trying to sell anybody anything. I'm only trying as a physician to provide information to people so they don't have to call through all the research. And at that point, we hired an attorney and she began to dig into the investigation, at which point she figured out that there were hundreds of clinics who had simultaneously received similar letters 
from the Federal Trade Commission and then the Department of Justice asking them to do the exact same thing. And after we spent several very stressful weeks going back and forth with her, um, we had in that letter from the Department of Justice, it was stated that we were to appear in Portland in July, substantiating with scientific research the claims that we had made in those videos, which I did easily. That that project probably took me about an hour to go onto PubMed and pull a bunch of research articles to support the things that we had stated. Our attorney came back and said, you know, Chris, they don't actually want you to come to Portland and they don't actually want to see the research. What they want you to do is just shut up and go away. This reminded you of your childhood then? <laughs> or maybe Sorry. my teenage years in high school. <laughs> Cheap shot. That, that really opened my eyes to some perspectives here on the pandemic and our government's response going, why in the world would these government organizations not want me to put out information as someone who's going through the research, somebody has experience treating this, why would they not want me to put out this information? Well, allow me to, to mistreat you here a little bit. Is this not consistent with your understanding of the of the dynamic between allopathic and natural medicine anyway has not the the ama and other organizations um had it out for non-members since the dawn of time well it, it it's probably not the dawn of time it's probably around 1910 when the flexner report came out which was a report that was founded or, or funded by the rockefeller foundation and it does go back that far. This was a report that um, essentially said that any previous or historical or ancient healing therapeutics, simple things, herbs, hydrotherapy, homeopathy, that all of these things were bunk. There was no science to support them and that we should be moving into this model of petrochemical derived patentable drugs. And so it at least goes back that far. And yes, I've seen it woven throughout my entire career where there's a censorship of information or a dismissal of information or an outright slander campaign on people that are doing really good science. So yes, it wasn't terribly surprising to me, but it was in some way because here's all this messaging of let's come together. Let's stay safe together. We can do this thing together. And yet I'm being told to shut up and go away when I'm trying to just help my patient base and the people in the greater, you know, California, Oregon region. Is it a fair question to to wonder aloud if perhaps profit played a role here? We can certainly wonder that. <laughs> or is it well past wonder? We We can wonder it. It struck me as awfully strange that this would happen to hundreds of clinics and now potentially upwards of a thousand, my understanding, um, all simultaneously, all very early on in this. Yeah, it's left me scratching my head quite a bit, Todd. I mean, not to go all historic here, but weren't we killing women in Salem because they were practicing natural childbirth? Yes. I mean, is this not consistent with our history it's it's quite possible that it is 
does it fall out of that simple and easy dynamic that um, a sick population is one that requires care and care is a is a profit enterprise and profits shall not be interrupted? I mean, you wouldn't be the first person to say it. And there's been some very vocal people throughout the pandemic who've stated the same thing. There have been many people who have presented early treatment options and have been shut down or silenced or slandered throughout this whole thing. I mean, I don't stand alone in this, that I have seen it with my own eyes over and over and over again, that when you treat people early and aggressively with simple, effective, inexpensive, highly accessible, non-patentable medications and substances, they get through COVID with no problem. Well, that's clearly just a bunch of misinformation. And you should be flagged for that. Well, I was. Okay. Fair. If we actually care for ourselves and we strengthen our body's ability to self-regulate and self-heal through thoughtful supplementation, nutrition, um, exercise, sleep habits, we could actually reduce our the threat level from coronaviruses and enable ourselves to live happy lives and then recover more quickly and be less sick should we become sick. And um, you were told to sit down and shut up for this. Not just coronaviruses, all viruses. And it, like we said earlier, this is not news to any of us. This is not brand new understanding that people that have elevated hemoglobin A1C, the marker that shows how well you're controlling your blood sugar and is the primary determinant of someone going into diabetes, people with a lower hemoglobin A1C have better outcomes with COVID. People that have hypertension or elevated cholesterol or any of those markers, elevated inflammatory markers, those people do a lot worse with COVID. So we know these things now, and that, as you alluded to, I believe should be the topic of conversation because this isn't going to be the last widespread virus that goes around the globe. And my deepest concern is that we're on the door of pandemic number two. And if we don't fix any of these things, you know, we're going to run into the exact same problems again. And perhaps with an even greater death toll. And that's why I wrote the book that I have coming out in September to offer up reasonable, simple, easy things that anybody at home can do to increase their ability to detoxify, to bolster their own immunity, and to minimize chronic illness in themselves. So not if, but when we have another global pandemic virus, they're better prepared for themselves and their family to weather it. Since you brought it up, what's the name of the book? The Virus and the Host. It's a Chelsea Green published book. They're a publisher out of Vermont. It'll be on bookstore shelves late September of 2022. It's about 300 pages long. It's got a lot of references in it. 
And the first half of the book is a bit about what we talked about this morning already, sort of my story early on in the pandemic, and then really dives into why certain populations got sick. And then the second half of the book is really about how do we prevent that moving forward? How do you get healthier so you're not susceptible to things like this? So if somebody is listening to this podcast and enduring the sound of our voice Mm -hmm. and they say to themselves, well, that's great. Todd's got a quack doctor on, right? Sure. Um, But as I recall, you, you had COVID yourself. I did myself, my entire family. We got the more severe, arguably more deadly variant, the Delta variant in October of 2021 and I was really sick my daughter got it she had a headache and a fever which was classic presentation of the delta variant in children she was sick for about five days my wife got it she was sick for about six or seven days but I was sick for about 14 days Todd I fevered for 10 days laid in bed horrible body aches horrible headaches an incredible thirst and um, it took me quite a while to recover from it. As I recall, when I called you on the phone and asked you how you were doing shortly after, you told me that you felt that this thing, or you sensed this thing moving through your body, looking for a weakness or an opening so as to end you. It's one of the strangest things I've ever felt. I, like anybody else on the planet, you know, being in my fifth decade of life, have had plenty of flus, have had plenty of viruses, bacterial infections. We all have a historical reference point for being sick. And I've never felt anything like that in my life. And what you're talking about there is I I remember one night early on in it, about the third night, when I wasn't that sick yet, laying in bed, and I, I felt the thing hunting through my back and my spine and as you said i felt an intelligence to it that it was looking for a place to take me down and it found one and that was that night and that next day when i really started to become sick so for me it it begs the question if i'm gonna put my cynics hat on you are still prime of life healthy highly self-observant in how you live, right? How you maintain your well-being. And yet COVID kicked the crap out of you. Is that consistent with the idea that you can prevent or minimize COVID through thoughtful nutrition and supplementation? It's a great question. It absolutely is. Viruses hit us in our weak spot, and viruses hit us where there's toxicity. And I unfortunately had a big toxic exposure about four years ago that I've been removing from my body over time. It's been a challenging one. And that's what I've seen in my patient base through this whole thing, too, is that folks that were already, let's say, clean they didn't have a huge body storage of toxins. They moved through this thing very quickly, and some of them without symptoms at all. 
You know, I had a lot of patients over the last few years who you'd have a family where one person got very sick with COVID and the other person had no symptoms. And if we go to sort of classic immunology and we look at that, and these are cases where the person was taking care of the sick patient, they were sleeping next to them. There is no way that this person did not get exposed to that virus. Zero, none. And I understand these people's cases because they're patients of mine. I know what their toxic burden is. I know what their inflammatory markers look like. And the person that had a greater toxic burden, more pre-existing issues, got sicker than the person that didn't. And that's consistent with me also. This toxic burden has been something I've been working through. And it COVID kicked my butt because of it. You're not the first person to refer to the instance in which they met me as a toxic event. <laughs> but it does sting me a, a bit. It, it, sting, it leaves a mark. Mine was a mold exposure, unfortunately. And, and I've seen that in hundreds of patients now, people that have high, heavy burdens of mycotoxins in their body or plastics, which unfortunately we all have microplastics in our bodies now or glyphosate or Roundup, uh, you know, the most common pesticide used in the world, or heavy metals. You know, heavy metal toxicity is a huge unrecognized problem. And I see these things because I test all my patients for them. So unfortunately, you know, it wasn't as easy as extricating you from my life. It was removing some of those <laughs> unfortunate toxic exposures that I had just by happenstance that um, though they're getting better, they were absolutely the reason that COVID was able to take me down. You know, you sound a bit like my mother because she was quite sure that heavy metal would be the end of me also. <laughs> You'd be I... shocked, Todd. Every single patient we check has some degree of heavy metal toxicity some much more than others. We see lead, mercury, cadmium, cesium, arsenic, and thallium to some degree in everybody we check. At the risk of interrupting, I want to preview our larger conversation, if I may. Absolutely. Because while this is a brief introduction and hopefully somewhat compelling, the large topic and the reason I want to develop the conversation with you over time is that COVID is a lens as I see it. And it has asked us to reconsider how we, and in so doing, then I want to talk about food. I want to talk about agribusiness. I want to pick your brain about the origin, the function and the role of um, the pharmaceutical companies in our life. I want to talk about medicine for profit. And does it make any sense that we would reduce illness if that reduces profit? And I might sound like I've got a tinfoil hat on with that question. I believe that there is a conversation to be had by which we can reconsider and make better choices in how we choose to live. And right now we walk a path in which many of those pieces have been handed to us and we have not resisted them that the food we eat should be packaged crap that the medicines we take should be for profit 
you know, petroleum-based medicines. It doesn't make a lot of sense to me. And when I look at the health markers in the United States, when I look at our cancer rates, you know, as opposed to Thailand and Cambodia, you know, we're 4% of the population, but we incurred 17% of the deaths of COVID-19. I want to step back and, and say, how should we live and what are we doing wrong and why? And I think there's a lot, there's a lot of meat on the bone there. And I'm hoping that you will help me walk that path. I think you can look at infectious disease through two different lenses. And I think this goes back to some of the camps we were divided in and some of the different perspectives. In one sense, you can say it's inevitable. It's just something outside of us. If I get exposed to it, if I've, you know, sterilized and used enough hand sanitizer and perhaps had the right vaccine, I won't die from this thing. And you can stand somewhere on the other side and say, if we do look at our food and we look at who's producing it and we look at what they put it in and what they put on it, and we look at the medicines that are being offered to us and the ones that are being denied, then you can you can sort of understand disease from two separate perspectives. And, and I would say there's probably something in the middle that makes the most sense for the average person that we are culpable for what happens to us in our bodies. And at the same time, the organizations and the governments and the agro food growers, they're also responsible for what happens to us in our bodies. And so once again, the middle path probably wins in preventing disease around the world. I can't help but think about my father who was born and raised in this country, had every advantage um, afforded to and available for you know, the average U.S. citizen, and lived a life of terrible health, um, reduced happiness and mobility, and an early end. And it, as I viewed him, it all stemmed from food and the toxicity of food. It's a common problem we have, isn't it? We see it if we look at the numbers of the most common diseases on the planet. You know, cardiovascular disease is number one. Cancer is number two. These are lifestyle diseases for the most part. You know, the genetic theory of disease is starting to dissolve. It's falling apart. It's not so much, you know, that it's in your genes, but that, you know, it's the, it's the things you do. It's the way you turn those genes on and off, the epigenetics that really derives disease. So, yeah, it's a systemic issue. That, that hits me right between the eyes. I remember my dad coming home from the doctor at one point, and he said, you know, my doctor told me today that I could actually reverse and end my diabetes if I changed how, what I ate. And I was like, wow, Dad, that's crazy. Who would have thunk such a thing? It's like, man, isn't that something? Hey, Todd, go get me some ice cream, would you? He made the choice. Every day and every evening. 
I've reversed diabetes in so many patients, I can't even count them. It, it is truly one of the lifestyle diseases that, that uh, is so highly preventable and so highly treatable that uh, it, it's, it's shocking to me. The number of people that walk through the door with the problem, the ones that choose to go on living the way that they already have, letting their disease move forward, only using medications. And then the other cohort that decides they see that the ball's in their court and they do have to change the way they eat and change the way they live and change the way they exercise. And then their numbers fall and they go from no longer being diabetic to having nice, tightly controlled blood sugar and better health. Well, that's, that's a lot to chew on. I'm going to call it there for take one with Dr. Chris Lebowski. Hopefully there'll be a lot more. Um, I really appreciate your time today. Thank you, Todd. Good to talk to you. All right. Talk soon. Bye. I hope you enjoyed our first episode with Dr. Chris Lebowski. Hope you'll consider giving him another shot. We have a lot to cover. Please take a moment. Give me a nice rating. And even better, perhaps share the podcast with a friend or two. And that's it from the Fire Swamp. See you soon.